Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Is there a hand up? I see a hand. Who's got a question? Is it my hand? It was my hand that was up. I do have questions. Um, I'm going to try and answer as many of them as I can. Um, but I do have some questions about where we're going with 14. So and once again, the technological unconscious has done the work for me. I've lowered my hand though, but that doesn't mean I don't have questions. So here's the thing. Um, oneness doesn't exist. We fantasize about it constantly. And what OBJA constantly reminds us of is that there's always a differential relationship between any two entities that we try and fuse together. And you know what? Nevertheless, we just keep trying. We just keep trying to stitch things together to make them one. And this is what sublimation means in the context of seminar 14, especially when other people are involved. And don't forget, we are angling towards the question of the sexual act. When other people are involved, sublimation is there to help us feel like we're trying to close the gap. It's an attempt that is paradoxically founded on the repetition of the very gap that it would try to close on what Lacan calls in his theory of rep of sublimation here in 14, the reproduction of lack. So with that, I wanna give you an example, but I don't wanna to put too much emphasis on this example, but I wanna suggest that a great example of sublimation when it concerns others particularly others involved with you in a sexual act is well captured by the phrase, putting the pussy on a pedestal. Now, I don't just say that to scandalize you, but that's a legit expression that people use all the time and they use it in many different ways. You could also put the dick on the pedestal, but putting the pussy on a pedestal is an expression that really captures this sense of oneness longed for so intensely that we fear we wouldn't even be able to handle it if it came about. So you would actually, in this case, avoid the sexual act because the pussy is too high up on the pedestal because you wouldn't be able to handle the oneness that it might bring. Instead of recognizing, according to Urban Dictionary, what the pussy is, which is a gift from the gods. Now. I say that again, not to be crass, but to put an example on this for you to think about as we unfold this. Instead, what I want to talk about is math. I love math. Let's do some math. So here's some basic math for us. You may have seen this on our Instagram. You may have seen this in some of our Substack posts. One minus one equals zero. That's about basic as it gets. Now let's talk about what we mean by this. The first one is the imaginary phallus. 
the same one that the child was imagining the maternal figure longing for in addition to themselves. That's a one. In fact, I'll share a screen so that we can chart some of this stuff out. Let's go back to our, uh, our dark screen here. We'll save the diagram we just did. And, uh, and we'll go ahead and start over so that we can do some, uh, some fuzzy math together. So we've got our one minus one equals zero. And you know what? I'm gonna draw this zero the way I like to draw zero, especially when dealing with Lacanian stuff, the empty set. Um, what I was suggesting here is that this one is the imaginary phallus. Here is your minus phi of castration. And here is your little a, the experience of lack. This entity, the minus phi, think of it as an incision or a cut. Not a cut as in a wound, because that's over here, but a cut as in the act of cutting. Little a here designates the opening left by an incision, not the cut, but the wound. Together, these two entities, minus phi and A, this is the experience of lack that is the cause of desire. So oftentimes what we hear is obja is the symbol for the lack that is the cause of human desire. And what we're developing in this series is a different theory of the object cause of desire. And one that I think cleaves closer to what Lacan is actually doing in his work, not what secondary scholars are saying about Lacan's work. What Lacan is suggesting is that lack is a multi-evental thing. It is generated at the level of a set. And there are two elements in this set. There's the minus phi of castration, and there is the little a, that is the ensuing opening that allows for lack. But lack is a composite of these two events, castration and its result or its effect. So what we might say here is what we are developing is a theory of the cause of desire that is not just an object cause, but is an object effect cause or an object cause and effect might be an even better way to put this. Um, we don't need to parse these hairs much further um, because I wanna get at some different math, um, some additional math. And it's really as simple as counting to three. This little a that here we designate as a zero, one minus one equals zero. It begets a whole series of other numbers one, two, three, and so on. You can count from zero as high as you want. What I wanna suggest is that this zero 
is the mathematical representation for obja. Obja is the symbol for a place where there is nothing, hence zero. All of the ones and the twos and the threes that show up afterwards, these are imaginary objects, not unlike the imaginary phallus. In fact, these would be refigurations of the imaginary phallus. I'm going to write them here as specular image, as ideal ego, the same algebraic term that Lacan assigns to the image in the mirror. Um, what I want to have here is a very tight understanding of the relationship between A and little i, A in parens. These imaginary objects that proliferate the life of a desirous being are all of the things that we think if we could just get these things, we would no longer experience lack. The metonymic flit of desire from one imaginary object to the next, phone after phone after phone. Do you think there will ever be an end to this sequence, interminable sequence of iPhones? iPhone 12, iPhone 13, iPhone 14. How long is this going to continue for? I mean, didn't they, did they, they retired the iPod. I mean, come on, can we just, I mean, when, when does this end? The point of desire is that it doesn't. There is always a new phone for us to buy. And the hope is that by getting the phone, not that we'll be better connected, but that we'll have better relationships. We will be recognized as somebody with the latest phone and thus more desirable to others. And don't forget, desire is always desire for someone else. That's why my theory of desire for, of, and as always begins with desire for another. Lacan tells you desire is always desire as another. But in order to understand that, you got to back up into this very basic, and Lacan just straight up says this, desire is always a desire for another body. This is straight out of seminar 10, I believe. This desire for, we hope will be met if we get the phone that everybody wants, which is why advertisers and companies use scarcity to produce desire. The hope is that if we get the correct one or two or three, and it goes on and on and on, hence the ellipses at the end here, that this zero will be filled in. In place of nothing, in place of lack, we will experience plenitude. We will experience fullness. We won't experience lack, but we will feel whole. All of these ones and twos and threes, the iPhone 1, the iPhone 2, the iPhone 3, et cetera. All of these enumerated objects of desire, consumable goods, these are all sublimations. Because in reality, they're just pieces of shit. They're just bullshit artifacts that in a few years, the software that supports the artifacts, also produced by the manufacturer of the artifact, is going to weasel its way in there in order to make that artifact useless. Hasn't Apple been caught 
using software updates to purposefully slow down older model of phones in order to keep people desiring the next latest greatest edition, the faster phone. Turns out your old phone is slower because Apple has made it so in hopes of rekindling or further kindling your desire for the next generation of the phone. These phones are all sublimations. They are pieces of technological shit that have been raised to the dignity. You know where I'm going with this if you read Seminar 7. They've been raised to the dignity of something that we think can heal our souls. This is how sublimation works. And when it comes to the sexual act, more often than not, it is the other that we sublimate. It is another's piece of shit body destined to slow and break with or without the help of Apple that we elevate and dignify, raise to the level of something that can make us whole, that can complete us, that can finally help us feel a sense of security, closure, and oneness. Hear me now, I'm still talking about that fundamental fantasy. Now, the drive, as we saw in our last series, reverses this process. This process of moving from the experience of lack to a series of sublimated objects that we hope are going to squash the lack and make us feel whole. Um, the drive, in other words, is a desublimatory process. The drive desublimates desire. Desire thrives on all of these bullshit sublimations. The drive desublimates desire. Fantasy, though, as the prop of desire, counteracts drive. Fantasy perpetuates the sublimation of piece of shit objects, ever rekindling our hope that one more phone, one more car, one more haircut, one more shirt, one more night out, one more sexual partner will make us feel whole, complete, one, just like the big other. That's what fantasy does. That is the prop that it offers to desire. It keeps desire on the sublimatory path, causing us to flip metonymically from one imaginary object to the other, ever in hopes of feeling whole and one, again, just like the big other. Um, the origin of this, it's not, it's not too difficult to see. Um, this origin of wanting to feel whole, it's a very modern experience, incidentally. Um, the late modernist, late capitalist extension that we're talking about here um, is of a cult of nature, of getting back to nature um, that grew up around, around urbanity around urban experiences as more and more people moved from the countryside in Europe in particular into these more, more dense, dense urban spaces, people started longing for the countryside as a place to go to get healed, to make oneself feel whole. And you see it in the American tradition too as well. I mean, what else was Thoreau trying to do out at Walden, out at the pond, yeah, people showed up and brought him like wheelbarrows full of food and every now and again a hooker would show up. 
he had all the comforts of life out there. That's right. It's just food and hookers. Nevertheless, he was out there having this connection with nature apart from the din of society, apart from modern urban strife and busyness and distraction and fill in the blank with all your um, European critics of modern social life. Um, this we now know in the age of the Anthropocene is complete bullshit. This belief that there is somehow a distinction between natural history, as my man Dittfish Chakrabarty first pointed out, and, and human history, that what happens in the city can somehow be left behind as you enter the mountains. I see this a lot in California as well, is ridiculous. Because the first thing somebody notices when they enter the mountains is that their phone no longer has a connection that their cellular link is now broken. And then they have a moment, maybe lots of moments, maybe many moments where they figure out and are reminded that their phone is no longer connected, blah, blah, blah. The truth we know now is that whatever we do in our human history has dramatic effects on what happens in the natural environment. So much so the natural environment now more than ever has started to bite back. COVID is the proof that the natural order of things as the moderns saw it intrudes upon ours. It is not a removed space. Environmental catastrophes left and right, further proof of this, that there is no separation between natural and human history. But you see, that's part and parcel of the fundamental fantasy, that in human togetherness, I'm fractured, I'm distracted, I'm stressed, but if I could just get to the mountains, just go to the beach and spend some time by the ocean, that I could be made whole again. If I could just get back in touch with Mother Earth, I'd be whole again. But don't forget where today's session started. The first and foremost barred other that the child encounters is mommy. It's the mother that is split. That is the first barred other. And don't forget this either. Fantasy and drive are in many ways counterparts, which is why mathematically in Lacan's algebra, they look kind of similar. Here's the math theme for drive. This just means now read it alongside the math theme for fantasy. Is it any coincidence that these two experiences, drive and fantasy, have similar constructions? No. And don't forget in the graph of desire, what is between the math theme for fantasy and the math theme for drive? Do you know what it is? It's a signifier of the fact that the other doesn't exist. Between Fantasy and drive is the basic argument that Lacan has been making for 200 pages in 14, that the other doesn't exist. Let's pause there, see if you have some questions. Okay, I'm going to keep going then. Repression, 
to repetition, to sublimation. I think we can now talk a little bit about sexual relations as Lacan is working out here in seminar 14. The sexual act is the word he's using here or the words he's using here in 14. Um, <clears throat> and with that, we are really just on the verge of a clear, coherent and accessible definition of fantasy. And don't forget, that's what lectures on Lacan is about. I'm not trying to make this shit more complicated. We are here and working towards clear, coherent, and accessible understandings of really useful and profound stuff. Lacan is difficult to read in whatever language you're reading him in. Our job here is to break it down, make it more accessible, make it more useful. <clears throat> and here I think on the verge of fantasy, we do have a bit of a definition and it is clear coherent and accessible. Page 157 to 158 of this glorious seminar 14. Give me just a second. I'll grab my manuscript and be right back. One fifty seven, one fifty eight. At the bottom here, well, let's back up for a second. You want to talk about sublimation? Check out what's happening in the middle of page one fifty seven. Good business there on sublimation. What I want to point us to is the last line, though, on one fifty seven, which continues up to one fifty eight. And I'll read it to you in as clear a way I can. Remember, here's our first, I think, and best definition of fantasy that we have in this seminar called The Logic of Fantasy. It only took us 157 pages to get here. The relation of little a to the split subject, insofar as the split subject attempts to be precisely situated with respect to sexual satisfaction, this is what is properly called fantasy. And it is what this year we desire to deal with. So Dr. Lacan, the student might ask, what do you mean by fantasy? He said, well, fantasy is this mathing where you have a split subject living their life in relation to objet a, but in such a way that they are attempting to find their way to a kind of sexual satisfaction. That's what fantasy orients us towards, an experience of sexual satisfaction. What is this fantasy of sexual satisfaction? That sustains the split subject. The satisfaction that we dream of in between nightmares of being torn apart, I would add, 
is that which we also delusionally attribute to the big other. Wholeness, completion, union, fusion, oneness, choose your word. If it sounds like we're beating a dead horse here, good. It means we're finally starting to understand what's up with the fundamental fantasy. The fantasy of sexual satisfaction that we dream about in between the more populated evenings of nightmares of being torn apart, rendered impotent. You know the dreams I'm talking about. You're trying to walk down the stairs and you can't. You're trying to get up from your chair and you fall over instead. Most of what we dream about is fragmented bodies, our own in particular, being torn apart, falling apart, your teeth fall out of your head. That ain't a dream about death. It's a dream about the beginning of life. Now, according to Lacan, don't forget, the beginning of life is tinged with death because the baby might as well be dead. That's how little it can do. This is the satisfaction that we dream about. There's a world in which we're not falling apart, in which our teeth don't just stay in, but merge with yours. The open secret of psychoanalysis is that oneness doesn't exist in sexual relations or anywhere else. Or as Lacan puts it, and I quote from page 166 of seminar 14, the secret of psychoanalysis, the great secret of psychoanalysis is that there is no sexual act. Now, if you've got ears to hear, the famous seminars with statements on the sexual relation, the sexual rapport, which can also mean measurement, don't forget, in seminars 19 and 20, they're starting to pop here. There is no sexual act, he tells us in 14. What he means by this, again, is remember, the sexual act is one that would produce this state of satisfaction where we feel whole, complete, which of course is propped up by the bullshit theory of love that we saw in that horrendous movie, Jerry Maguire, so many decades ago. You complete me. As soon as I lost you, it was like I lost my left arm. I felt incomplete. As though love and sex were fundamentally about completing you. Bullshit, Lacan says. Why not? Why is this bullshit? Come on, we have sex all the time sometimes to great satisfaction. And you know what? The process is nothing if not active. It's just a little bit active. It's still active. Come on. We are active sexual beings who occasionally to some of the time, to most of the time, experience great satisfaction. We're just talking about Lacan telling us we can't do this. That seems ridiculous to me. First, we have to understand what Lacan means by an act. And I'm not gonna make this up and I don't make anything up in here. In fact, most of what I have said, you can call me back to it, call me out. Hell, this is gonna be recorded and posted. We can find the passage in Lacan where he says this stuff. All I'm doing is walking us through materials that he's already worked through. And in this case, how many decades ago? This is from 67, y'all. Check out page 166, 167 of the manuscript. Things really start to pop here. Toward the bottom, 
the second to the last paragraph. You see just beneath the statement I read, the secret of psychoanalysis, the great secret of psychoanalysis is that there is no sexual act. There's that statement right there on page 166. See, I told you, I'm not just making this up. Now check out the next paragraph. This could be sustained and illustrated by reminding you of what I called act. And this gets back to some of the questions that came up last time about what he's doing here with act, acting out, passing to the act, so forth. What's he mean by act? Namely, this reduplication of a motor effect as simple as, quote, I am walking. This ensures simply that by just being said with a certain accent, it is repeated. And from this reduplication takes on the signifying function that makes it able to be inserted into a certain chain in order to inscribe the subject in it. Now we can map this on the exact same topology of return that we were messing with around the experience of repression. So let's go back to our screen and do it. And let's actually stick with the example that he has here, which is I am walking. It won't take but a minute to work this out. So you have this embodied event. And I realize this is a cheap move to draw two legs walking. And then you have the linguistic representation of this. I am walking. There's your sentence. Same one he just used here. This is the embodied event of walking. And here you have the linguistic representation of it. The act is the connection between these two events. And this is kind of the wild move that he's making here. The act is not the event of walking as an enunciating subject, if you will, nor the statement, I am walking, as a grammatical subject would say, but instead, it's the retroactive marking of I am walking as a repetition or here a reduplication of this motor effect of two legs walking through the road. The act here is repetition, which applies to the exact same logic that we were working with in the theory of repression, which came first, the symptom or the trauma and so forth. Um, does this mean that Lacan wasn't walking until he said, I am walking? Of course not. What it means though, phenomenologically, is that no one probably noticed he was moving across the lecture room floor until he said, I am walking. Yeah, they saw him moving, but did they notice it? Hell no. Did they notice him walking? No. It's the signifier that designates and retroactively marks itself as a repetition of some event, an embodied event. Here, what he calls a motor effect uh, that, that is at work here. This is what he means by act. 
The act reduplicates something. It repeats it. It represents it. In short, it signifies it. An act also in so doing sets the stage for the subject. That's also what we see in the paragraph on 166 that we just read. Here again, this graph, this topology, this topology of return applies pretty well to us. Here's my question. What is the agential force at work here? What's the agency that moves this experience, this repetitive, reduplicative, retroactive event forward? If we know that it ends at the level of a split subject, what can we say about its origin? What is this agential force? And where exactly does the sexual act fit into all this? Don't forget, that's what we were just looking at. The force here is the unconscious. And the question we now wanna ask is, what does the unconscious say about the sexual act? But first, one more paragraph, bottom of 166. Is there in the sexual act this something which, in the same form, the subject might inscribe itself as sex, establishing in the same act its union to the subject of the sex that is described as opposite? In other words, is there something in the sexual act that allows the subject to achieve union with the being sexed in the opposite direction? And this assumes a kind of heteronormativity, but the same logic holds um, no matter how you are sexed. The answer Lacan gives us at the top of 167 is this. It is quite clear that everything in analytic experience speaks against this. And I'll leave it there. Lacan does not believe, and he's building this belief atop analytic experience, that this actually occurs, that there is some sort of a fusion or a union that can occur between two differentially sexed beings. Well, we can talk more about that. If we were to redraw this image that we just had of walking and I am walking in a way that would be a little more abstract, but also a little closer to what Lacan is doing conceptually, it might look something like this. Here is the sexual act. In all of its glory, whether it brings you union or not, I'm wagering it does not. What you have over here are partial objects. And those of you that were with us for the drive, you know what we're getting at here. Down here as the agential force here, you would still have the unconscious. And we might pose as a question again, what pops up on this side now, if we switch the process around. 
By constantly producing partial objects, the unconscious finds itself speaking about sexuality. This is what Lacan says on 166, specifically the sexual act. Now, what the unconscious says about the sexual act by producing one little A after another, it's a good way to understand what's happening with these partial objects. They're just little A's popping around. <clears throat> one lost object after another is that it does not because it cannot exist. The sexual act, the unconscious tells us by producing partial objects does not because it cannot exist. At some level, the logic here is very simple. Sexed subjects, because they are bipolar, cannot achieve oneness, union with their oppositionally sexed partners. Again, try page 166. In other words, as Lacan puts it on the following page, 167, and I quote, because there is sexuality, there is no sexual act, exclamation point. Now, this is why the non-binary movement is so tempting. The non-binary movement makes a lot of sense here because wait a minute, if the problem is that we have had to pass through this bipolar straits of sexuality, as Lacan calls them in seminar 11, and are properly gendered as little boys and little girls, and that in turn creates this dialectical relationship that in order for me to be a male, there has to be a female around, isn't the answer to do away with these binaries? and instead open the floor to all these other possibilities? A good Lacanian might respond, no, because now you've just created a new binary, a binary between the post-binary world you're creating and the pre-binary world that you are now opposed to. Maybe that would make you a good Hegelian and not a good Lacanian, but there might be something there as far as a critique of the non-binary movement. <clears throat> but I didn't come here to talk to you about that. I came here instead uh, to do math. I'm not gonna lie. But my math, as I learned last night at dinner uh, from an eight-year-old is pretty basic. She's learning division. And I'm like, what the hell is division? How do fractions work? I just can't even believe this. You know who else really doesn't seem to understand math? Lacan. That's right. I just said it. I think he's a pretty poor mathematician, at least a teacher of mathematics. In fact, Lacan kind of reminds me of every teacher of mathematics I've ever had. He makes it a miserable experience. And you got to work really hard to understand what the fuck is going on at a mathematical level. Again, I say this only to applaud the work of Alain Badiou, not to take a shit on Lacan. Because what Badiou has effectively done is combined a mathematician's brilliance with what Lacan is doing as a psychoanalyst, flirting with the idea of math. Now, but before we go into this mathematical mode, I see there's a question. What's up? Yeah, Sam, I, I just had a quick question. So when you were, the, the image you just erased, 
when you were talking about the reverse, uh, that the unconscious produces the partial object that goes back to the second. So and then you have the question mark at the bottom. I, I missed what that question mark resulting pro product would be. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that. And that may have been okay. the reason why the hand went up. It's tempting okay. to put the split subject there because, you know, it's always where the split subject seems to wind up in the elementary graph of desire. Um, but you might be able to put something else in there, something um, made with a lowercase l like libido, maybe okay. like this, um, this pure, undivided, um, lamella-like thing that uh, is the real lack that we endure when we pass through the bipolar straits of sexuality. I leave it as a question mark. I'm still thinking about it. All right, thank you the, so much. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad, Chris, you're not gonna, Christopher, you're not gonna let us um, get off the hook there. Um, it's a good question. Um, and maybe we'll come up with an answer along the way. Um, I don't wanna rush into that one. If you've got an idea, by all means, um, hang on to it <clears throat> and, and share it when you can. Now, that said, how about a little more fuzzy math? What I'm gonna try and do here is just do some basic mathematical work to explain what we're up to here. The fantasy of the sexual act, like that of the big other, is as follows. That one plus one equals, you guessed it, one. Here, the one that is the result of this equation is think about oneness, union, fusion, completeness, wholeness. One plus one equals one is the belief that if you take one sexual partner and another sexual partner and you put them together, the sexual act will result in their communion. If that's the fantasy, here's the fact. You know what one plus one equals in Lacan's work, as we've talked about in this series so many times. One plus one equals three. This is the mathematics of objea. Because one plus one, in order to have two distinct entities, there has to be a third element, a differential relationship that allows them to remain distinct. If you didn't have a differential relationship, those ones would collapse into one another. Ah, and you might have the very oneness we fantasize about, but that shit ain't the truth. This third element, this additional one that allows us to say in all fuzzy mathematical logic that one plus one equals three is the relationship, differential relationship between the two ones, between the two partners. Lacan is always gonna say, oh, this is the signifier because the signifier represents the subject to another signifier. So we've always got signifiers between us. And that's okay. I think that's an okay thing that he says. I don't think it's very helpful though in understanding what it is that prevents our fantasy of sexual relations from ever becoming a reality. Page 169. And even if you don't have the manuscript in front of you, I throw this out so that you can have access to it when you need it, if you need it, if you need to come back to this. 
Check out how Lacan is framing some of this stuff on page 169. Simply, there is no male without a female. This is of the order of the real. This has nothing to do with logic, at least in our day. Now, maybe what he's suggesting here <clears throat> is that only women give birth and thus all men originate in woman. That could be the very real biological dimension he's speaking of here, but I don't want to presume that. And then there's the contrary, the contradictory, he says, which means the following. If something is male, then it is not non-male, nothing else. It is a matter of finding our way in these two distinct formulas. The second is of the symbolic order. It is a symbolic convention, which has a name, precisely the excluded third. Anytime Lacan says third and talks about thirdness, don't just think about Charles Sanders' purse. Think about OJI. This ought to make us sense sufficiently that it is not from this angle that we are going to be able to arrange things, since at the start, we have sufficiently accentuated the function of a difference as being essential to the status of the sexed dyad. That's important. There's a difference that is essential to the status of the sexed dyad. That difference is the third element, uncountable, this additional one too many. It's a one too many that prevents that dyad from ever being reduced, closed. There's no monadology of sex, according to Lacan. There's only a dyadology of sex. And that's the reason why there is no sexual relation. If it can be grounded, I mean subjectively, we will need this third. There's something about this third that is necessary in order to make sense of the sexual relation, according to Lacan. Let us try. Let us not try. Let us not make an ugly grimace by claiming to attempt what we have already introduced, namely the logical status of the contrary. We don't need to continue with this. It's on page 169. You can stick with it. We also don't need to reiterate that the algebraic symbol for this difference that is essential to the dyad implicit in every sexual relation is marked by little a in Lacan's algebra. I wonder, do we need to say more about how we get this little a in Lacanian psychoanalytic thought? His approach to the castration complex is the easiest and quickest way to mark this thing out. But maybe we don't need it. I tempt myself always with wanting to draw triangles and squares when we're working on this material. Holler at me if you think we need this. I'm happy to redo it and I'm happy to do it quick or I'm happy to just move on if you feel like you understand what Lacan is doing with the castration complex. Well, I just had a, I had a quick question. I'm sorry uh, to interrupt. Um, 
when when he begins talking about sublimation on like 155 uh and and a lot of this i was not understanding as i was reading it um but he goes into like the golden ratio uh and then i was wondering like well that's symbolized by the faust fee right so is there some sort of connection that he's trying to create there between like the way sublimation works with the golden ratio and that it equals fee i don't know probably um he's messing around with this golden ratio right he is it's and it's i i wish that i wish that his messing around with the golden ratio were as beautiful as the golden ratio purports to be um right yeah yeah. um i really like though this connection between the the magic number he's trying to arrive at and the phallus um the, the magic number is a kind of endless failure and and an eternal failure, an infinite failure, if you will, and and so is uh, so is the phallus in a, in a very real sense. It's it's premised on failure, and and don't forget that what we're talking about here in the castration complex is essentially what's up with the phallus, and the answer, as you've heard me say here and elsewhere, is this: mommy doesn't have it, and you can't be it for her. The experience of castration is the experience, if it's done well, and you've heard from me before, from our lectures on seminar 10, 11, and forward, what it means to do this well, to perform the paternal function well, as I understand it reading Lacan, is that it would result in the child feeling like the maternal figure, the original big other, doesn't have the phallus. In other words, that she is barred, that she is lacking. And crucially, that the child can't be it for her, can't fill her in in that way. Now, those of you that are keen readers of Lacan or or clinical structures can hear me alluding to Lacan's theory of the clinical structure of perversion. The pervert is precisely someone who believes that they can be the phallus for the other. I can be your dildo. I can be that for you. Climb aboard, let's find out. That's what the pervert oftentimes thinks and says. But for the neurotic, normal in the sense of typical how things unfold, there's this dialectic between having and being that the castration complex opens up. When minus phi sets in, when castration takes form, when the paternal function as the no of the father, as prohibition, as alienation, fill in the blank, there are tons of words for this. When this happens, the bumper sticker that the child comes away with is, mommy doesn't have it and I can't be it for her. Having and being the phallus turns out to be part and parcel of the fundamental fantasy. At some level here, this is a prohibition against incest. Lacan says as much on page 171 of 14, namely against the attempted fusion with the maternal figure. I don't think about this in terms of like the child wants to have sex with the the primary caregiver. It's not sexual in that way. It's sexual in Lacan's way, which is to say it's about fusion 
oneness, completion, emerging without remainder. And what he's saying is that at some level, castration is about a prohibition against any attempt, fantastical or otherwise, to fuse with the primary caregiver. And this is why, for instance, you know, we make jokes about in the bedroom, you know, before you're getting down to it, you, you take the picture of, uh, of your family on the dresser and you turn it face down, or you put a shirt over uh, the picture so that the family can't see you. We oftentimes have this in, in, in like scopic theory and stuff like that. Nah, man, the reason why we turn that picture face down is because incest is prohibited. Mommy ain't allowed to be there in the type of oneness we're about to pursue. So that's one way to read what's coming out of the castration complex and this bumper sticker about having versus being the phallus. Not the only way, but it's one way. And it's again, right out of 14. Because castration precedes the sexual act in most cases, right? You were castrated long before you tried to crawl in the sack with somebody. We can say with Lacan that there is no sexual act which does not involve a strange thing, he says, castration, right on page 172. There is no sexual act which does not involve a strange thing, he says, castration. And before it, we would add in our reading of 11 and our lectures on the drive, sexuation. So before the sexual act would occur, there would be first the passage of the living being through the binary straits of sexuality that Lacan talks about in 11, resulting in a real lack. And then there would be the process of alienation. Remember where we started our series on 14, which is the passage of the living subject through language, through society, resulting in the experience of alienation. Here I'm using the word castration for that. So before any sexual act, any attempt to fuse with another being, as Lacan understands a sexual act, there would be first sexuation and second castration. This is part of what Lacan's getting at here. There's no sexual act which does not involve castration. The third uncountable elusive element in every sexual rapport is the forgotten fact that everybody involved is not only sexed, but also castrated. You are sexed and castrated before you turn the picture face down and crawl in the sack. They are sexed and castrated before they smile as you turn the picture upside down and crawl in the sack. Behind every experience of lack, symbolized in the algebra with a little a, is an experience of loss, here symbolized by the minus phi, a removing of something. That's really what the cause of desire is. It's an experience of loss, coupled with an experience of lack. They are not the same. To lose something is a different experience than to lack it. The previous cut represented by minus V 
couples with the present wound represented by objet a to produce an object, cause, and effect of desire. Lacan's point here is that behind every little a in every fantasy, there is a minus fee, a forgotten loss. This is what the discourse of the unconscious says about sex. Page 175. And it says it in the form of the symptom. Page 177, which Lacan defines as something that goes wrong. Let me say that again. This is important. Behind every experience of lack, there is an experience of loss. Behind every objet a, there is a minus fee. This is what the discourse of the unconscious says about sex. And don't forget, in the 170s here, this is what Lacan's trying to figure out is, um, we've determined that the unconscious doesn't speak sex, it talks about sex. And then the question is, what does it say about sex? And here's the answer. It says behind every experience of lack, there is an experience of loss. And it says this in the form of a symptom. Now you can fill in the blank what that symptom might be. Lacan's just gonna give us a definition on 177. The symptom is something that goes wrong. This is why we so often fantasize about things going just right, especially in the bedroom. We fantasize about things going just right in sexual relations because all too often things go wrong. And that is what the unconscious says about sex. Whatever else we mean by just right, Lacan's wager is that we are fantasizing about just one thing, namely oneness. Take a look at page 183. That is what the one is the sex unit, nothing more. You know what? If I was going to open like a nightclub here in my beloved city of San Francisco, you know what I would call it? The sex unit. What a great name for a club, the sex unit. Or like a great name for like perfume or cologne. Give me some of that sex unit. That is what the one is. It's the sex unit and nothing more, Lacan says on page 183. And then in the next paragraph, note the words, unitive, unites, fusion, lost paradise, fusion again on page 183. The sex unit is an attempt at union, totality, completion, plenitude. That's not the topic I wanted to leave you alone. It's a good one, though, because i got to open that club called the Sex Unit. But in the meantime, it's at the bottom of 183 that I want to direct your attention. 
I am beginning today precisely by remarking that if jouissance value, mm, that's a good one for those of you who like seminars 16 and 17, by remarking that if jouissance value takes its origin in the lack marked by the castration complex, in other words, the prohibition of autoeroticism being brought to bear on a precise organ, which only plays there the role and the function of introducing this element of the unit, da, 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 da. here's the thing. We dream of ones because we live as negative ones. That's part of what he's getting at here, to get at these units. But very quickly after that, he shifts to that question that we just heard from the audience about the phallus. What is this precise organ here? which only plays there the role and function of introducing this element of unit at the inauguration of a status of exchange. What's happening here? What is this precise organ that the castration complex prohibits our autoerotic enjoyment of? See, that's the other part here. The castration complex doesn't just prohibit incest at the level of fusion with the maternal function or the maternal figure. It also prohibits the autoerotic enjoyment of a precise organ. Scroll down a little bit more. Namely, that it is insofar as the phallus designates from something raised to a value by this less, which the castration complex constitutes, this something which, constitu which constitutes precisely the distance between small o and the unit of sex. Now we're starting to get somewhere. Here, it's not just a prohibition against incest again, but more precisely, a prohibition against autoerotic enjoyment of the phallus. That's what we're seeing here on 183. What's the phallus here? It is a pocket-sized slide rule of sorts, atop which the notion of the unit, the sex unit, in exchange relations, capitalist especially, is founded. You hear Lacan messing around with measurement, slide rules, small enough to fit in your pocket throughout seminar 14, or at least in a couple of key spots. And this is what we're after here with the phallus. It's a pocket-sized slide rule that gives us the foundation by having it taken from us of the unit, the sex unit, but also more broadly, he's making a broader claim here, a Marxist claim even about exchange relations, that the basis for the unit, whatever it is, in exchange relations is the phallus, a phallus that has been minus, subtracted, placed under erasure. That's what he means here by raised to a value by a less. That's a weird way of saying minus V. It is starting from there as the whole experience teaches us that the individual who is going to come to be raised to the function of partner. This is also part of what he's doing with sublimation. You heard it from me, here it is in Lacan. Someone, another person, an individual, who you are going to raise, elevate, 
sublimate to the function of a partner, a sexual partner, someone whom you designate, elevate, sublimate to the status of the being able to complete you, to allow your fundamental fantasy to finally be realized in the sexual act. In this test, which the subject is put of the sexual act, the woman to image my discourse is going to take on for her part, her value as object of jouissance. And now we enter this notion of the male fiction. This is where things get interesting. Here's how it works. Castration assigns the phallus a minus value. Because we don't have the phallus, we can be it for others. But some of us don't have the phallus more than others. Because we're castrated, we cannot have the phallus. We don't have the phallus. It's part of the argument here. And what you don't have, you're able to be. So there's this weird contortion of the original bumper sticker of the castration complex. Mommy doesn't have it and you can't be it for her. Where having and being enter into some sort of a strange dialectic. And that's what we're trying to figure out here. A dialectic that Lacan here on page 184 calls the male fiction. Hold tight, y'all. This is going to be the final move that we make in today's penultimate session on the logic of fantasy. Reading on, page 184. But at the same time and by the same operation, look at what has happened. It is no longer a matter of he enjoys. He enjoys something. Jouissance has passed from the subjective to the objective. So think about this. Castration complex is a prohibition against autoerotic enjoyment of the phallus, this precise organ. Okay, subjectively, autoerotically, I don't get to enjoy this. Ah, but now I can find someone else and make them my special object. So now my jouissance has passed from subjective relating to me to objective relating to you. To the point of sliding to the sense of possession I don't just want to enjoy you. I want to have you, my dear phallus. In the typical function, as we have to consider it as deducible from the incidence of the castration complex, and I already brought this forward the last time, it is constituted by this change of direction, which makes the sexual partner a phallic object. Something that you hope will make you whole again. A point I'm only highlighting here in the direction of the quote man to the quote woman, insofar as it is here that the operation is, as I might say, most scandalous. For it can be articulated, of course, just as much in the other direction. In other words, from quote woman to quote man, except that the woman does not have to make the same sacrifice since it is already attributed to her at the beginning. You know where he's going with that. I don't need to spend any time with it. In other words, 
I'm underlining the position of what I would call the male fiction. If you've got ears to hear, phallic jouissance, which can be expressed more or less as follows. Hold on, y'all, this is gonna get weird. One is what has. There is no one happier than a chap who has never seen further than the end of his nose and who expresses a provocative formula like that. To have or not, one is what has. The one who has you know what. The one who has you know what. And then one has what is. The two things hold up. What is, is the object of desire. It is the woman. All right. So let's break this down a little bit because come on, man. I don't know if this is lost in translation or if Lacan is just legit talking crazy at this point. Here's where I think it's cracking here. To lack something is to be incomplete. If I experience myself as lacking a new smartwatch, I feel myself as being incomplete. And so the dialectic tells me also that to have is to be complete, whole, one. To lack, to not have is to be incomplete. And to have as a result must be to be complete. Dispossession, lacking, possession, completion. This is that dialectic of being and having that the male fantasy starts playing out. If I lack something, I'm incomplete. So if I have it, I must experience completion. What is it that he hopes to have? Well, you see where we're going with this. What I should call the simplistic fiction is being seriously revised. For some time, people have noticed that it is a bit more complicated. But again, in a report named Direction of the Treatment and the Principles of Its Power, you know where to find that one, I thought I had to re-articulate with care that people do not seem to have seen very clearly what is involved and what I would oppose to this male fiction as being, to take up another of my words from last time, the value, mm-hmm, one is not what one has. This is not altogether the same sentence. Pay attention, huh? And he's telling you all, pay attention. One is what has, but one is not what one has. In other words, it is insofar as the man has the phallic organ that he is not it. Which implies that on the other hand, one can and even is what one has what one does not have. Namely, it is precisely insofar as she does not have the phallus that woman can take on its value. Again, I don't know what's getting lost in translation here. I sure wish Bruce Fink would get in here and give us a proper English translation. But here's what I think Lacan is saying. Part of this male fiction, the logic of which is as we just heard, to lack is to be incomplete, so to have is to be complete. Part of the fantasy or the fiction spins out atop that logic like this. Man has woman. 
So he can't be the phallus. If I have it, I can't be it. Woman does not have the phallus. And here again, she doesn't have it more than man, as Lacan points out. She didn't have to make the same sacrifice, Lacan says. Think about his work on circumcision um, in seminar 10 and how that links up and delinks with what he's doing with castration. Woman does not have the phallus, so she can be it. Here it is again. Man has woman as his phallic object. So he certainly can't be the phallus himself. Woman doesn't have the phallus and doesn't have it more than I, male, also castrated. She lacks it more than I do even. So all the more reason for her to be it. Here is how this dialectic of being and having gets played out in male fantasies of wholeness. You might even add obsessional fantasies of wholeness for the clinicians in the group. But this male fiction is a contortion of the original dialectic of having and being that we see emerge from Lacan's account of the castration complex. Mommy doesn't have the phallus and you can't be it for her. Here the male takes that and says, aha, woman doesn't have it and I'm certainly not gonna be it. So maybe she can be it for me. I can have the woman. And as a result, I'm not going to be the phallus. Whew. Close call, right, guys? Woman does not have the phallus. So why can't she just be it for me? This is where Lacan starts to unfold his theory of phallic jouissance. It's proto here. It's still just getting going. But notice the move that he makes right after this. Such are the points that it is extremely necessary to articulate at the start of any induction into what the unconscious says about sex. This is where we have to start, Lacan says, if we're going to understand what the unconscious says about sex. And then notice the move down at the bottom. Lacan gets biblical. And anytime he gets biblical, there's usually something hot right before or right after. No surprise here. He goes to the book of Genesis, describing for us so well, namely, the woman conceived of as this something of which the body of man has been deprived. This is called in the chapter, you know so well, a rib for the sake of modesty. So woman is made from a rib taken from man. And Lacan saying, oh, what a modest depiction of what we're really talking about. A rib is a bone, is a boner, is a phallus. Castration takes the phallus from everyone. But it's part of the male fantasy to always want it back. Give me back what you took from me. Give me back yourself as what was taken from me so that I can enjoy you in a way that I'm told I'm not allowed to enjoy myself. This is also a way that the drive 
very importantly intervenes. The drive is autoerotic. It's about returning to subjective states of jouissance. Yeah, objects are involved, but the drive is fundamentally autoerotic. In our series on the drive, we talked about the living subject, a subject who has passed through the bipolar straits of sexuation and the equally splintering gyre of language. You know this, of alienation. Here in 14, in the passages that we've been reading, I'm inclined to ask a different question. Not what is the living subject, but what is the sexual subject? What exactly is the sexual subject, according to Lacan? A clue comes to us on page 192 where Lacan says the sexual subject equals one plus A, or in our fuzzy math, one plus zero. What he means by that, I believe, is the sexual subject is a combination of the fundamental fantasy of oneness to come, that's the one, and the very real lived experience of lack, incompletion, in short, castration. We have the fantasy of oneness up against, if you will, alongside para in the Greek, alongside but also against the lived experience of lack. That's what that zero, little a, designates for us. The sexual subject is one plus zero. Now, why is this important? Why does this matter? It matters not just for our theory of the subject, but also for our theory of the so-called big other, which is the topic of seminar 14 up to this point. This big other that is always already barred, but that we refuse to acknowledge as such. Lacan says on page 189 that the sexual subject as one plus little a, one plus zero, equals one over little a. The mathematical equation here is one plus A equals one over A. How are we to read this? One over A is an is a, is a ratio, but really what it is is, a, is, a, is an operation of division. The one, the oneness that we attribute to the big other is always divided by this little a. The one that we assign to the big other doesn't exist because it is always barred, split, divided by something that it cannot integrate into itself, something that keeps falling out of its totalizing effort. Again, the algebraic term for this in Lacan is little a. Little a under one. Now Lacan makes a big fuss about the plus, the equal sign in the bar on page 189. I would just emphasize the entire mathematical equation. One plus zero equals one over zero. A one that is divided by a zero that it cannot metabolize. Even if we believe otherwise, even if we assume 
that the identification between the one, oneness, and the other, the big other, the truth still prevails. Because what else is this identification, this relation between the one and the other that Lacan is talking about here as we edge toward the end of today's readings? But a third element, an additional one, that is distinct from and irreducible to the oneness that we erroneously assign to the other, that we errantly attribute to the big other. Either way, we win at the end. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.